Okay, oh yeah, that, that makes sound. Are you sure this is working too? Okay. Um, so it's time to begin, and let's begin with, uh, by opening our prayer with an Our Father. I'm going to do a song a little later. Sarah's going to do a song. This is, we're, we call this Hootenanny Night, and um, we're going to do a discussion on Moses, and uh, we'll talk about the plagues of Egypt, the Exodus, the Passover, and um, seeing, see some of these great uh, theological understandings we get that we apply into the Catholic Church from that episode. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, yeah, I haven't done this song in a long time. Let's see if I can do it. Oh, the blood on the Passover lamb is applied to the door of my life. No power of darkness could ever withstand force of the blood sacrifice though satan will bring accusations let him know right where i stand for now there is no condemnation i'm under the blood of the lamb i'm under the blood of the lamb that covers the guilt of my past by the mercy of god holy and righteous i stand i'm under the blood of the lamb i'm safe and secure from the enemy's plans no weapon formed against me will stand i'm under the blood of the lamb So that's a, oh, you don't have to do that. <clears throat> that's a fun little song that uh, um, we used to sing in the more charismatic days that um, talks a little bit about some of the things we're going to be discussing tonight, the, the blood of the lamb, the Passover, and I've got a lot of material to go through, as I almost always do. So I'm going to try to push through this uh, fairly quickly. So we, we talked about the Blackitepe, we've talked about Abraham, now we're going to talk about Moses. Moses is a very important figure, obviously, in the Jewish people, in the establishment of the uh, theology of Judaism. And that, of course, becomes our Catholic faith when the Mosaic Covenant is replaced by the New Covenant of Christ, but a lot of the aspects, a lot of the understandings that arose in that Mosaic Covenant, we transfer into the church. And so that's why we want to see the roots of our Catholic faith in this. So we know the story of Moses. He's, he's, he's uh, born in Egypt. We talked about Joseph last week as the last of the patriarchs. 
And it, the scripture says, there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, and the Hebrews were enslaved. This is probably the uh, transfer of power to the Hyksos, which happened around, um, uh, oh, around 1700 BC. And so you've got this, this new group uh, in control of Egypt. They were actually Semites that had migrated there probably from, from Sumer and Mesopotamia, took over, conquered Egypt, took over the capital in Amaris, and enslaved the Hebrews. The Hebrews are becoming more populous than the Hyksos. And so what they want to do is they want to reduce the population. They do that by deciding to kill all the male babies. But Moses' mother takes Moses, puts him in a basket, and sets him in the water. You've seen the movie, right? We all know the movie, how this all works. So he throws in the water. Interestingly, remember we talked about Abraham coming from um, being an Akkadian, coming from Akkad. And the founder of the Akkadian kingdom was actually, they did the same thing to him. His, his mother put him into, it's actually Sargon. They put Sargon into a basket. They set him free on, a river, on the river Euphrates. And the god, Aki, takes him and raises him. And then he becomes the, the founder of uh, the, the uh, Akkadian people. So... Moses' mother's act is not so much an act of desperation, but more like a prayer that she has, has they have this history, and um, so she's quite willing to do this. She believes that God is going to take care of him. Of course, you know the story. The Pharaoh's daughter picks up the baby, raises him in the, um, in the palace of Pharaoh, and this was not uncommon. Well, of course, Pharaohs had lots of wives. They had lots of daughters. And um, they would do this often. They would take in foreign babies, raise them in the household, but not to become like the Prince of Egypt, if you've seen that movie. Um, they become servants in Pharaoh's household, become servants, not princes. So this is Moses' lot. Now, as he grows up, he uh, sees his Hebrew people being mistreated. He kills an Egyptian who is beating a Hebrew it gets seen, there's a price on Moses' head. He flees to Midian. Midian, by the way, is not a place. It's a tribe. The tribe, uh, Midians were, the Midianites were uh, nomadic peoples, lived in uh, the area of, of Arabia and Jordan. And they were just, no, there were nomads traveling through those areas. And he does okay there. He marries Zipporah, who is a uh, daughter of a Midianite priest, and he's a shepherd. And then he has this experience with the burning bush. And in this experience with the burning bush, God speaks to him. And it's a fascinating interplay. And I don't want to go into too much of it right now, but um, he asks God's name. Now, if you see the movie, the Cecil B. DeMille movie, they pretend that nobody knows the name of God. But that's not what Moses is issue is. Moses' issue is he comes from Egypt, and now he's living in Midian. He, he's, you know, his father-in-law is a priest, and he's aware of lots of gods, thousands of gods. And so when he asks for God's name, what he's really asking is, which god are you? 
what God am I experiencing here? And God gives him this most profound of answers. His name is I Am. So he's not one God among many in some pantheon. He is I Am. He is what St. Thomas Aquinas refers to as the true act of to be. He is all being. St. Paul refers to God as all and in all. It's an amazing understanding. That's an amazing revelation. You know, we're 1500 BC and God is revealing himself as all and in all. No one had a concept of that. You know, God, there were gods everywhere and they fought among each other. That God is all and in all. It's an amazing revelation. God tells Moses to go back to Egypt and set the Hebrews free. The, chil the children of Abraham, the Abraham's descendants who were enslaved in Egypt, have been enslaved now for 300 years. He says, go back to Egypt, set them free. And he gives Moses a couple of uh, uh, miracles to do. He throws his staff down and turns into a serpent and things like that. Um, but Moses doesn't want to go. Moses says, I don't speak. I'm, you know, I, I can't talk and I look funny. You know? And besides, if I go back to Egypt, they'll kill me. This isn't going to work. But God, of course, has that all in mind. He sends Aaron to help Moses. Aaron is um, Moses' brother. And they go together to Egypt to do this. So you know the story. Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let the Hebrews free. And Pharaoh says, no way. These are our slaves. We can't let all our slaves go. And um, so the plagues ensue. Now, that's what I want, one of the things I wanted to talk about. I promised we would discuss this. Because a lot of times, we only think of the plagues as something that's recorded in the Bible. But actually, there's an Egyptian record of the plagues. And placing these two records side by side really gives us some, some insights as to what actually was going on there. And it helps us to understand the, what God was really doing. Because when you just read the, the, the scriptural, when you, the biblical context of the plagues, God comes out as kind of mean, doesn't he? You know, he's throwing hailstones, he's throwing locusts, he's, there's, there's darkness and blood, and, and, and the kids are dying. He's killing all the kids. God's killing all the kids. Does this make sense? So let's put these two, um, these two texts together. And let's take a look at something here. All right. So beginning, the first plague was the plague of blood. Remember the Nile River and everything turned to blood. And this comes from the Papyrus of Ippawar. This is the Egyptian account. It's called the Papyrus of Ippawar. And he records the same event. Indeed, Ippawar says, the river is blood, yet men drink of it. That is our water. That is our happiness. What shall we do in respect thereof? All is ruin. Men shrink from human beings and thirst after water. Indeed, crocodiles are glutted with the fish they have taken. So then more, more plagues ensue. It's the, the next two plagues are the, are the frogs and the gnats, then the flies, and then there's an epidemic against the livestock. The livestock start dying. Going now back to the plague of uh, the text of Ippawar, the Egyptian account. 
Indeed, all animals, their hearts weep, cattle moan because of the state of the land. Behold, priests transgress with geese, which are given to gods instead of oxen. In other words, all the cattle are dead, so they have to sacrifice geese instead. Pestilences throughout the land, blood is everywhere, death is not lacking, and the mummy cloth speaks even before one comes near it. That's an interesting way of expressing that people are dying everywhere. The mummy cloth is talking. Behold, the possessor of wealth now spends the night thirsty, while he who once begged his dregs for himself is now the possessor of overflowing bowls. Behold, the possessors of robes are now in rags, while he who could not weave for himself is now a possessor of fine linen. Behold, the poor of the land have become rich, and erstwhile the owner of property is the one who has nothing. This kind of extends to the point of the end of the plagues. Remember when, when the Hebrews finally leave Egypt, the Egyptians are giving all of their stuff to the Israelites and saying, take, take my stuff and get out of here. They're so in such a rush to get rid of the Israelites whom they believe are causing these plagues. So they give all this stuff. So now this is talking about this great reversal. The rich are now poor, but the poor, the slaves, are now becoming rich. The other plagues that come next, the boils, if it were comment on that is, everyone's hair has fallen out. The hail mixed with fire, Ippor writes, indeed, gates, columns, and walls are burnt up. The statues are burned and their tombs destroyed. Upper Egypt has become an empty waste. Indeed, men are few, and he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. The next plague is the plague of locusts. Ippor writes of that plague, no fruit or herbs are found. Grain has perished on every side. The king's storehouse is the common property of everyone, and the entire and the entire palace is without revenues. And then the next to the last plague is the plague of darkness. And Ippor's comment on the darkness, which lasted for three days, is very simple: the land has no light; all is dark. So when we go through these different plagues which we've always had the biblical account of, we see in the Egyptian account, is, it very much coincides with this. So we have now a corroborating account of these plagues. But then we come to the plague that disturbs us all, the, first, the death of the firstborn. And in the scripture, it just says this. It says, the angel of death came and slew the firstborn. Now the Israelites were spared because of the blood of the Passover lamb. And we'll go into greater detail about the Passover lamb in a, in a little bit. But basically with, what the Hebrews were instructed to do by God through Moses is to sacrifice a lamb and to take that lamb's blood and spread it around the, uh, around the doorway, around the lintels of the doorway. So you, you spread blood all over the, uh, around the doorway and then they would eat this Passover lamb, they would eat unleavened bread, and they would prepare to leave because their journey was upon them. So this is what they did. In fact, um, the, the practice of eating the Passover, uh, I, don't know if they, I don't know that they do it still today, but at least through the time of Christ, is 
they had to eat the Passover standing up. And the, the father of the house had to have his staff in his hand and his belt on and all ready to go. And they would eat standing because they were, their, their redemption was upon them. They were about to leave. But this is where it gets interesting. Whereas the scripture just says the angel of death comes and slays the firstborn. Ippur gives us a lot more information, a lot more detail on this particular plague. And this is what the Ippur Papyrus says. Noise. Greater noise than ever before. There is no end of the noise. Everyone says, I wish I might die. Little children said, he should, have not allowed, he should not have allowed me to be born. Would that I have raised my voice at that moment. It might have saved me from the pain I am in now. This is Ippower writing a very personal experience. Indeed, from the private council chamber, its writings are taken away. The mysteries which were hidden in it are revealed. Indeed, magic spells are divulged. Ancient spells are frustrated because they are remembered by men. Infants are laid out on the high ground. Even the children of princes are dashed against walls. They were alive yesterday, but today are dead. What is happening here? What is all this talk about ancient texts, magic, things being remembered, and this, and this smashing of, of children and blood on the walls? I think what Ippower is describing, remember the Hyksos, they were Semites. They came from Mesopotamia. When we talked about the Canaanites and, and how the Semitic tribes used to kill their firstborn, and until Abraham said, this is not right, God will provide a sacrifice. I believe that the priests of Egypt, the Hyksos priests in Egypt, in desperation to bring an end to these plagues, resorted to child sacrifice. And that they went from house to house, taking these firstborn and sacrificing them, slaughtering them. And it seems that they get to the point where they're even going into the houses of the Egyptian princes, taking children and smashing them against the walls. I can actually envision these priests running through the town doing this, taking the children, sacrificing and spreading their blood across the walls so that the priests who are following them, and there's a, it's, it's a mob going through, will see the blood on the wall and say, oh, that house has been done already. And when they get to the Hebrew houses, guess what's on the walls already? The blood of the lamb. Now that makes this miracle very different, doesn't it? That makes this, this miracle not one of God killing all these children, but of God instructing his people how to be spared. And it's not God who's slaying the firstborn. It's these pagan priests, these Hyksos priests, who are doing it. 
So when we, and you can see why an author of Exodus, who's writing several hundred years after this event, because Hebrew was not a written language for another 500 years after the Exodus, could say simply, the angel of death passed through and killed the firstborn. So I always like to bring this up because sometimes we get this opinion that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are very different. The Old Testament God is the angry, smiting God who goes through and kills children, where the New Testament God is, is loving and sparing. But when we see that, when we see it from this perspective, well, God is the same. He is still loving and sparing. He's instructing his people how to be spared in the midst of this insanity. And I would note that when we talk about the plagues in Egypt, they were not limited to Egypt. The plagues are um, referenced in Greek documents. They're referenced in Sudan and in other areas. Um, this was a, an event that occurred across the entire Mediterranean basin and beyond. It was a huge event. It's usually linked to the volcanic eruption of Thera on the island of Santorini. And that eruption was 40 times greater. I've got these numbers here somewhere. I'm not great at numbers. 40 times greater than the um, explosion of Krakatoa that occurred in the 19th century. Archaeologists who have studied it have said that the eruption of Mount Thera spewed 100 cubic kilometers cubic kilometers of volcanic rock into the air with an explosive power that exceeded the energy of 50,000 Hiroshima-style atomic bombs. We see this often in the Old Testament, where there is a massive natural disaster. We would call it a natural disaster. But writing, you know, 1,000, 1,500 years BC, they have no concept of a natural disaster. To them, God has done something. And so, and that's how we get this impression of God in the Old Testament doing these evil things, wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, put, placing all these plagues on Egypt because that's all there, that was their understanding. But it's not God. We know who God is because God is revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. So when you read something in the Old Testament and you say in your head, I just can't picture Jesus doing that. <laughs> then we can know that we need to apply a more mature understanding, a more mature understanding, mature in faith, since we have received so much more revelation than they had in 1500 BC. Okay, so having talked about the plagues, I want to go back to the Passover and this, this, this incredible meal, which 
becomes for us, of course, the Eucharistic feast, where Christ is the Lamb of God. Remember, I, I say this in, in every Mass. I, I, I hold up the bread and the wine. Behold the Lamb of God. That's what we're talking about, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. It has always been interesting to me that Jesus was, was killed. He was crucified at Passover, not on the Day of Atonement. Now, you would think if we focus a lot on Christ forgiving sins and the day of forgiveness of sins was the day of atonement. That's in the fall. But Jesus was the Passover lamb. And that is the lamb that sets us free, that, that protects us against evil, sets, brings us to freedom, sets his people free. It was, it's being moved, not just forgiven of sins, but being set free from sin and death and ushered into the new promised land, which is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth, of course, being the church and the ultimate kingdom of God in eternity being heaven. So since this is the meal, now the meal we celebrate, you know, as I say, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he himself took bread. That's because he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples as he began his passion. And it's that Passover meal that we still celebrate in the Mass today. Someone talked to you about how, how the Passover was celebrated at the time of Christ. This is how it was done at the time of Christ. So it begins on the month Nisan, which is a Jewish month, which is in the springtime, has to do with the, uh, the moon. They have a 28, all their months are 28 days, all right? And um, you think we get, try to have trouble with the leap year. Every, leap, every four years we get an extra day because all of their, all of their months are lunar-based, 28 days. Every four years they have to add an extra month <laughs> to catch up the calendar, all right? So it's in the month. So it's in the month of Nisan. It's in the spring. On Nisan ten, they bring the the lamb that is to be sacrificed into the home. They select this lamb for sacrifice. Nisan ten, tenth of Nisan, happens to fall on the year Christ was crucified on Palm Sunday. The lamb is brought into the home. The lamb is selected and brought into the home on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and is hailed as Messiah. Three days later, the father of the house searches uh, throughout the house for leaven, any, any kind of yeast. And then he says, all the leaven that has, uh, I've searched for is no more leaven in the house. Everything is accounted for. The next day, the 14th of Nisan, which is Holy Thursday, is when everybody gathers for the Passover meal. As everybody gathers, a slave or a servant of the house washes the feet of everyone who comes in to celebrate the Passover meal. At Christ's Passover, he washes everyone's feet. That had to be a phenomenal experience. But Christ washes, he becomes the household servant who washes everyone's feet. 
and tells everyone, if, you, if anyone who wants to be first, he must become last of all and the servant of all. Matzah is served. Matzah is a, they call it bread. And I guess we call our host bread too, but that doesn't look much like bread. But it's actually like, more like a big cracker. And the way it is cooked, of course, it's, it's, it's without leaven, and it must be pierced and striped. So if you ever go to the store, you can go to the store and buy moths, and you'll see how it has been pierced and striped in its making. And just as Christ on Holy Thursday was flogged, and as St. Peter tells us, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. There are four cups of wine celebrated at Passover. The first cup is the cup of sanctification, in which the father of the house says, I will bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. The second cup is the cup of blessing. The father says, I will free you from being slaves to them. The third cup is the third cup of redemption. The father of the house says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty act of judgment. And the fourth cup is the cup of acceptance. And the father says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. All four of those cups are fulfilled in our cup, the one cup of salvation in which we celebrate the blood of Christ. The next day is Good Friday. This is the day when the lamb is sacrificed. And on the Friday, this is the, this is the day before the Sabbath, all the lambs have to be sacrificed before sunset because then it's Sabbath. Parents of the first star, it's tomorrow. So they have to be sacrificed on Friday before the appearance of the first star. And so everyone starts bringing their lambs to the temple ground. To, all the families bring their lambs to be sacrificed there on the temple ground. At the time of Christ, Josephus records that there were 200,000 lambs sacrificed there in Jerusalem. So they bring the lamb that's been in their home now for three days. Remember, they brought it into their home. They bring the lamb and they will, they will very gently and painlessly kill the lamb. There, there's a method they do where they calm the lamb down and they slide his throat with a very sharp knife and uh, so it's a very painless death that they give to the lamb. They then, boy, I'm, I'm getting kind of gross here, aren't I? They then, some of you, those of you who are hunters and have prepared game know what's coming next. Then they have to gut the lamb, right? They have to clean the lamb. They pull out all of, all of his entrails. They hang the lamb on a pole, which actually looks a lot like a cross because they have to wrap the, the legs of the lamb across the, the, the cross beam so they can hang the lamb on this pole. They take the entrails of the lamb and they place it on his head, which is referred to as the crown of shame. And then the lamb is bled out, eventually will be taken down to be uh, roasted and eaten. What is fascinating is that as Jesus is dying on the cross, 
there are at that very moment in the city of Jerusalem tens of thousands of lambs hanging on crosses. As Jesus is wearing the crown of thorns, these lambs are wearing this crown of shame and they are being prepared to be eaten by their families. Christ tried so hard to demonstrate that he was indeed the Messiah. But there at the time of Passover, he comes as the lamb hanging on the cross to set everyone free, to set all of us free from slavery, to sin and to death, to brokenness, and bring us into the promised land of the kingdom of God. Now that does include, of course, the forgiveness of sins, but the emphasis is not on forgiveness, it is on freedom. Just to show us how much God loves us. And I've often said this, you know, if, if, if Christ just had to be sacrificed for sins, if he just had to spill his blood for our, us to be forgiven, he didn't have to go through so much pain. <laughs> he didn't have to face the cross. What a, what a painful way to die. I mean, the, the Passover lambs were very carefully killed painlessly. That's a part of Jewish law. And in fact, today, if you buy kosher meat, one of the things you're assured of is that the animal that you're eating was killed painlessly. That's a, that's a part of being kosher. But the reason he accepted that type of death is so that in our lives, he loves us so much that whatever we go through, and we all go through some junk in our lives, don't we? Whatever we go through, he is there to say, I know how you feel. I've been there too. I have been betrayed. I have been ridiculed. I have been rejected. I have been left alone, left behind. I've had people try to kill me, try to stone me. I even was stripped naked and hung up beside the road for everyone to see. Whatever we go through, Jesus is able to say, I know how you feel. I've been there. I am with you in the worst of life. The blood of the Passover lamb. Well, what comes next in this story? After the Passover, it's the Exodus, and we know this story because we've seen the movie. Moses is taking his people where? He's taking his people to Mount Sion. Not Sinai. <laughs> I said Sion. Mount Sinai. Because that is where he has had the experience of the burning bush. He wants to bring everybody back to meet God. And so they're taking the, uh, the, the road towards Sinai. And of course, the Egyptian Pharaoh realizes that all the slaves have left Egypt. In fact, in one of the Ippower documents, it says, 
All of the slaves are gone. How are we going to live? They've lost their entire economy. All of the slaves are gone. So, realizing this problem, Pharaoh comes after the Egyptians. He wants to bring the slaves back. They come to the sea. This is a very, you know, scholars debate. Where did this take place? I've been at the Red Sea. I've been in the Bitter Lakes. I've driven uh, all through that, all through those waters. But in the scriptures, the sea that they cross is called Yam Suf. Yam Suf quite simply means the sea at the end of the world. And it means everything, any of the waters all the way from the Bitter Lakes through the Red Sea, all the way out into the Indian Ocean. You know, anything to the east of Africa, all water to the east of Africa was called Yom Suf, the sea at the end of the world. So we really don't know. It doesn't, the scripture does not say Red Sea. It got translated that way in the 17th century, and um, it's kind of gotten stuck into our mindset but that's not what the scripture says it just says the, the sea at the end of the world most of the most scholars will say it's probably in the bitter lakes region and uh you know the bitter lakes region or it, that's a significant waterway but anyway this will be a place with where this event happened now the miracle is that because of a strong wind that blows all night long a portion of the, of the waterway has become dry ground. And of course, I love the way Cecil B. DeMille does it, where he just stands all the water up and the Israelites go walking through with these walls of water on every side. You know how he did that, by the way? Jello, tons and tons of jello. <laughs> but they walk through the water on, with these, this, these mounds of water on either side. And then the, the Egyptians, of course, they pursue them into the water and, um, you know, the miracle ceases, the waters come back, crash down and, and kill the Egyptians. For us, this becomes the type of baptism. This is what starts the whole concept of baptism. And in fact, in the, in the Passover, and actually in every Seder, every every um, uh, Arab Shabbat Seder, Seder, they will take um, an herb, I forget which herb it is, and they will dip it into the salt water and, pardon? Hyssop, yes, hyssop. Yes, because we've been to Seders together. Um, dip it into hyssop as a remembrance of God preserving the children of Israel through the sea. So the waters of the sea, or for us the waters of baptism, are those waters that are that demarcation between slavery and freedom. To the Israelites, it was slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and then freedom to go to the promised land, to us, it is slavery to original sin and freedom to live as God's children. In the waters of baptism, we are 
born again by spirit and by water. This is what Jesus promised to Nicodemus. You must be born again by water and spirit. And so in baptism, we are immersed in the water. Well, the water's poured over us one way or the other. And we come out of the water as children of God. We have been born again by water and by spirit. And the next act in the rite of baptism is to take the sacred chrism oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, used to uh, ordain bishops and priests, and the child is anointed. And in ancient traditions, at that point, the priest would pray the prayer, you are sealed as Christ's own forever. In the Catholic tradition, because they separated um, baptism and confirmation, that prayer now becomes part of the confirmation service, no longer baptism. But, you, but we still will anoint with the sacred chrism and say, receive the Holy Spirit. So, this event, which became the founding event of Judaism, which, of course, then leads to the law and leads to the creation of a Jewish state, is also our way of coming into God's family. The rites of initiation in baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist are all contained in this event. Their, their source, the core of those events, of, our, of those sacraments, all take place or come out of this event. But there's one other event I want to talk about, and this happens a couple of days later, about a week later, uh, in this event of, of the Exodus, they only go about three days into the desert, and guess what they run out of? Bread. <laughs> they didn't think it was going to take them so long. And they run out of bread. And they all begin to, to grumble and murmur against Moses. We're going to starve to death out here. We would have been better off back in Egypt, right? But then you know the story. Bread starts to fall from heaven, right? The manna. And do you know what the word manna means in Hebrew? What is this? <laughs> this white stuff comes falling down from the sky and the Israelites walking around the desert, they're all saying the same thing. What is this? And so that became its name. So they gathered up the what is this and they... Um, began to discover, hey, this you can eat this stuff, and it's good, and you can actually grind it together and, and make cakes out of it and cook it, and this is pretty good. The bread that fell from heaven. But Jesus teaches us in John, John chapters 5 and 6. In John chapter 5, he takes, the, he feeds the multitude with a few loaves and a few fish, and he, he begins to multiply it so that everyone eats. And then they say, let's make him king. But Jesus says, I'm not king. I am the true bread that came from heaven. And unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And at that, everybody who wanted to make him king ran away. Because that was too much for them. But Jesus points out that manna came from heaven and it only lasted for a day. After that, it spoiled. 
but he is the bread of all eternity. He is the bread of eternal life. He is the true bread that comes from heaven. And so when we come to the Eucharistic table, we eat the true bread that comes from heaven, Christ's body. We drink the blood of the Passover lamb, all four cups of wine of the Passover meal summed up in one, in Christ's blood. And receiving Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, we are set free from slavery into eternal life. So that's all I have. Actually, I actually got that done in time. I know that was a lot of material, but I just find that stuff fascinating. And I think Sarah's going to sing a song for us now. Thank you so much. All right, questions. I go through all that and there are no questions? There's a lot to take in. <laughs> <laughs>
makes our faith so real. I love that story of the Passover mm-hmm. because it just it just puts into context God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. What we're doing here was there, was before, will be forever. But also, it's I really enjoyed. Um, well, actually, I had a question about that. Um, hold on for a second. Let me find it here. The Egyptian account. So the only place that we actually... Oh, you did get to it. Okay, good. God wasn't mean. It was a volcanic eruption, and it was all over the place. So these plagues were everywhere. But that Egyptian account, I think, is pretty awesome to hear that you know everything was revealed kind of reminded me of the veil being torn in the temple when jesus died Mm -hmm. no more you know no more of that separation and this was that was the good thing and that was the bad thing in the beginning you know it's good it was really good hold on for a second i might have another i might have an actual question um, you did answer that one. And I, I was confused. I thought that the... They don't eat lamb at the Passover meal? They do. Okay, but they're, but they're not eating the perfect lamb. I, and I thought, they, I thought they were never allowed to eat sacrificed animals. I thought that was just what they gave to the temple and that they were to sacrifice. I didn't know they actually ate the sacrificed lamb. And what did they eat at the Passover the day before? I'm not sure what they ate. They did, um, you know, when, we, when you have a Seder, you've got several different portions of that meal. And, um, but you don't eat the lamb at the Seder meal. I think that was the Thursday night meal because you'd have the bread and the wine, the matzah, and the four cups, but then the lamb is eaten on the next day. So they ate sacrificed animals. It depends on which sacrifice, but the Passover, the Passover sacrifice was always done by the father, not by the priest. There, are other, there were other sacrifices that were actually gifts to the priests and Levites, but the Passover was done. That's why there were hundreds of, there were 200,000 of these lambs being sacrificed because every family has its own lamb. When did the Passover meals, so it began with the Exodus at, at Moses. Mm-hmm. So when Abraham, the father, was going to sacrifice the son, then it all kind of comes together. Yeah, it does. Because that was the that was the practice of many Semites was the sacrifice of the firstborn. Abraham stopped that for all of his descendants, but there were still Canaanites and others who practiced that even into after the uh, Hebrews went into the Promised Land into, into Israel. But these Hyksos who had migrated from Mesopotamia they re- they resurrected that practice in an attempt to put an end to the, these plagues. So we can say now, if looking back, knowing who God is through the life and ministry of Jesus, God the Father 
provided the sacrifice Abraham. That's right. And the father, the Hebrew family father, sacrificed the lamb. Mm -hmm. And then God the father sacrificed his only begotten son. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I have no hard questions for you, sorry. That was, <laughs> but that was good because it all, right. The Catholic faith is an organic whole that spans all of history and even prehistory. That's one of the things, I, that's what I'm, one of the things I'm trying to, us to grasp here. The Catholic faith is an organic whole that spans all of mankind's history. So, any other questions? We have a mic. No other questions? We have a question. We have a question. Okay. He's debating whether or not to ask that question. Make it a hard one. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you have to forgive my. I'm here. To, I'm here to discover. Uh, so I wasn't like raised in the church or anything. But one of the th things I'm kind of having a hard time with is the uh, burning bush. I think in the first week we talked about the burning bush. You mm -hmm. talked about the burning bush, and uh, I am was God's response. And so then it, that, uh, if I recall correctly, you know, it, it, we can say God is everything in a way. Mm -hmm. But I guess I'm having a hard time delineating how God is not as much a part of the good things that have happened or that happened in the world as he is part of the things that might be bad or impact people that didn't hear the message from Jesus or, you know, it's got a negative impact on them. So, I, I don't know, I'm trying to... Well, draw a strong distinction between things, the universe, yeah. the material universe, and events. We say bad things happen, but we can draw a distinction between substance and events. Now, when the scripture refers to God being all and in all, it's really talking about substance. Everything in the universe is an expression of, the, of God. That's why we can, we can perceive God in nature. We can learn about the nature of God by studying nature. Scientists can learn about the nature of God just by studying the action of quanta in a quantum field. They can, under, they can gain understanding of who God is and how God acts. However, events, bad things happen to good people. That is really just, that's the downside of the privilege of living in a physical universe. One of the basic natural laws of a physical universe is what we call entropy. Things tend to move from order to disorder. Bad things happen. And if we are going to enjoy sunshine and rain, somewhere there's going to be a hurricane and a tornado. I mean, in, in the natural world, good and bad happens. But God is still God. And God never promised us that bad things weren't going to happen. He just promised to always be with us through everything. There's an interesting event in Christ's life because 
ancient Jews did tend to believe that if you were a good person, God would do good things for you, and if you were a bad person, God would punish you. And during Christ's life, there were um, some people who were killed because a tower fell over. And this tower fell over and killed uh, several people. And they come to Jesus and they say, so what did these people do to deserve this? Why were they so evil? Why are they so bad that God would strike them dead by having this tower fall on them? And Jesus said, they're just people like everyone. You know, they're not any better or worse than anybody else. Bad things happen. But we all need to live our lives towards God in such a way so that we're, we're capable, able of coping with this and moving forward. So, yeah, it's, uh, bad things do happen to good people because we live in a natural, physical universe and there's a downside to that. So to, to clarify, then, to go back to the very beginning of your point, we, God is not necessarily a substantive part or, you know, you, you said that we learn about God through um, nature and mm -hmm. substance in, in, in the first uh, episode. <laughs> yeah. The first of the discovery classes we talked about, uh, string theory, I think it was. I did get into string theory, yes. But I, I guess I'm trying to, is, so is, in your interpretation, is God... described by that existence in those theories or is he it part of that natural substance even mm -hmm. in the very beginning on the first day of creation there's nothing well and, and that's what we know there was a time and place where there was no time or space you know and then god speaks light energy into the universe and that energy that emanates from God, which actually is an expression of him. It's his word that becomes energy that dissipates through the universe and becomes the planets and the stars and the galaxies. So in a very real sense, everything that exists is empowered by the energy of God. But that doesn't mean we go worship rocks because, well, God's, you know, you know we're not pantheists. But when we say God is all and in all, that God's everything in the universe is an expression of God's existence. Without God, nothing could exist. It would go back to the formless void that it was before. But see, in our perspective, there is light that is God. There is darkness, which is nothing. It's just the absence of light. So we see God in all things. God is all and is in all. He is the true act of to be. In him, we live and move and have our being, as St. Peter says. So, God is everything that is and is much more. Um, there's a inter very interesting book called Quantum by Manjit Kumar. And in it, he, this book's like 600 pages or 800 pages long. It's a big book. And it deals with the debate between 
Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr over the, exi over the nature of reality. Am I getting too heavy here? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty abstract, I mean, God, it's, it's very abstract. Yes. It's not, it's not black and white by any means, so I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to figure my way through. So there's you this. also said that God's not impressed with intellect, so I mean, you know, and I can appreciate that. So anyway, in this book, in this argument, this debate between Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein that went on for decades, it's over the nature of reality. Niels Bohr, who was the uh, discoverer of the atom, he, because of certain ex uh, experiments in quantum mechanics, believed there was no such thing as objective reality. All reality was based on the subjectivity of the observer. And there's some quantum experiments that, that tend to prove that. So if there's no reality without an observer, according to Manjit Kumar, the only way you can have an objective reality, I mean, something that exists beyond someone observing it, is for there, for there to be a God who is bigger than the universe, who observes all things. Now, it's interesting that Manjit Kumar is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God. So he does not believe that there is, a, there is an objective universe. He believes every, everyone's universe is subjective to their own observation. But, um, but Albert Einstein then that's, said that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> there is objective reality. You can't just say there's no, you know, there's no objective reality. But the only way to, for there to be an objective reality is for there to be a God who is an observer who is bigger than the universe to observe all things. So it's a very interesting play. But I don't know, did, did, does that help your question? It's putting some more parameters around the question. Was Albert Einstein, did, I, I can't recall, but like, you know, isn't, Albert Einstein is equal MC square. Wasn't that kind of like an explanation for the like ever expanding power of the universe and that factor? It's like the invisible factor. E equals and, MC squared. That, that, was, that was the equation that says basically that matter and energy are the same stuff. And again, that goes back to the fact that if matter and energy are the same stuff, everything that exists in the universe comes into being because God spoke light into darkness and everything emanates from the, the energy of God's spoken word when he said, let there be light and all things came into being. Although it took 10 billion years for everything to come into being. But, but still, that's, that's, yeah. Well, the, the wheels are turning, so I appreciate the explanation and, you know. Yeah, I know. This, this, is, this, this is some pretty amazing stuff. Now, and one of the reasons that I go into this, quite frankly, is that so many people have abandoned the church and, and abandoned God, have become, have gone towards atheism because their understanding of God no longer intellectually makes sense. If they think God is sitting on a throne somewhere and toying with us, well, that's a great, great description of Zeus, but that's not our God. And so we need to have a, a deeper un intellectual understanding of God because we live in a very intellectual society, we need to be able to explain God in a way I think that people can grasp. Oh, that makes sense. This, this sounds like a God that I could believe in. 
But I, I guess, I don't know, it still takes me back to the initial point of if God was the energy that created the universe and, and the natural world that we know, then it still seems to me that he is, or it, God, is as much a part of a, a natural disaster or a, um, oh, what were we talking about today? He's as much a part of the uh, volcanic explosion that caused the interpreted plagues as he was a part of the of Moses and the burning bush who guided some other people away from those. But it, mm -hmm. I see what you're saying, and you're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Um, God is... God creates the energy that becomes the universe, and he is the energy that becomes the universe. Um, but you're right. In material form, bad things are going to happen. Bad events are going to happen just because of the nature of materiality. And eventually, the entire earth is going to disappear. And Jesus promised that. His heaven and earth will pass away. In five billion years, our sun will nova, supernova, and everything will vanish in this solar system. To, to follow that, then, because mm -hmm. uh, I think about the people that might, that, you know, given their proximity or, or where they were on earth, maybe they didn't get the opportunity to learn about the teachings of God or the way of God, but were adversely affected by some of these events that we can agree were caused by God's earth. Mm -hmm. And so what, what about those people? What's their fate? You know, as, as we learn about these stories, you know, it's not like there was an internet or a PA system or, or you know, there's people mm -hmm. all around the world that might not have had the, the opportunity, if you will, to learn about this Catholic faith, unless I've, I've unless I've missed something and, all, all of humanity and all the tribes scattered about the world had the opportunity to, to make so, the right choice. Yeah, well, um, this, is, this is why when the Bible says God caused this to happen, there's an element of truth in that because God created all things and the natural order of all things is that bad things are going to happen. If we're going to have rain and sun, someplace there's going to be earthquakes and um, I mean, just the geophysics of the planet are such that there'll be good weather and bad weather and, and there'll be natural disasters. Um, but in the individuals, I mean, a lot of people died. A lot of people died. 36,000 people died when Krakatoa exploded in the 19th century. That's a lot of people. So they all go, we're all going to die. And everybody who died in that volcanic explosion goes to God. And all mankind are judged according to what they have done with what they have been given. Jesus taught that in the parable, many, many parables. So they're not judged, oh, well, you weren't Catholic, so you, have to go, so you have to go to hell. Or you didn't accept Christ, you're going to go to hell. No, everyone is judged individually according to what they have done with what they have been given. But we all face death. And you're right, in these natural disasters, a lot of people die. 
Okay. That makes sense? Yeah, it does make sense. All right, good. No, no. Okay. So I just wanted to Thank just you. say oh, this certainly. is this is I love that Jonathan. I love that whole discussion. And this is kind of where as Christians we have to keep that eternal perspective at all times. Mm -hmm. And remember the fall of man. Remember when there was a, a place where people lived where bad things didn't happen. It was going to go on forever in perfect harmony. And then because he was kind and gave man free will, everything changed. And so then, boom, everything, then sin enters the world, and that is destructive. Destruction enters the world. And that's when everything starts, the chaos he knew it from. He knew it was going to happen. I mean, he, you know, he knows the end from the beginning. But when we remember, that's how. That's where. This is not our final place. All of it is for later. So when we can have some understanding of what, who, and what God is now, that is helpful. But we have to. We also keep in mind down the road eternity with him and facing him and having him ask what did you do with what i gave you you know that kind of thing yes yes that's good okay but we better wrap up because it's 10 after and i don't like to keep i want to keep everybody here for so late but i really did enjoy that discussion i'm glad you raised those issues i am they're, too they're very uh serious and deep issues and i'm glad we got a chance to cover that but let's close with the hail mary all right, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for coming. God bless you all.